0: Welcome everyone to another episode of Nerdy Latinas Podcast. Before we play the episode for today, we do want to provide a space to recognize all of those that we've lost this year. We know that everybody will be celebrating Dia de los Muertos in their own unique way and following their own traditions to commemorate those they've lost, and we want to be respectful of that. We also want to communicate to everyone that we've created a platform for people to provide their experiences to share knowledge and we want to be respectful of those experiences that Dr. Hernandez and Diana La Zapoteca shared. We'd love to hear your feedback on this episode but we do want to be respectful of their knowledge and want to honor that space. We want to also communicate that with this episode we're not trying to shame or bring division in any way We hope that you can take something from this episode, that you will learn something, and this episode will bring insight to this beautiful celebration. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Shot Latina, and welcome back to another episode of Nerdy Latinas Podcast. With me, we have Sabritas, and I want to welcome back Diana La Zapoteca. Uh, she will be discussing the topic of Dia de los Muertos, appropriation of indigenous culture, but we'll also explore about cocoa. Diana La Zapoteca is an anthropology major from California State University in Northridge. Welcome, Diana.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me back again.
0: Absolutely. we You are always welcome with these nerdy Latinas. <laughs> We're so happy you're
1: back. <laughs> I'm happy I'm back. I love... Talking and just chismeando with you guys. Last time I had so much fun in this episode,
0: y'all, I'm very excited. <laughs> Talking about chismeando, uh, we got a comment from one of our listeners, Maribel Navarro, and she sent us a beautiful message. I do want to thank her for taking the time to send us send us that comment. Uh, we will play it for you guys, and we do want to respond. It was a comment uh, directly after hearing the episode Chismeando about Frida Kahlo, and I think it's important to provide perspectives and reactions to the episode. I think it's important to have a conversation. So let's play the clip.
2: Thank you for inviting me to voice my opinion on the Frida episode. This is Maribel um, from Mujer Divinas. I really found the episode very interesting. I definitely think it's worth exploring Frida's use of indigenous clothing. And I think understandably, Um, It brought up a lot of personal feelings because it's something that I personally grapple with, this idea that my appearance could constitute grounds for appropriation. I think when Hispanic American people learn about negative criticisms of Frida Kahlo, they take the criticisms personally because that's what they, and myself included for a very long time, that's what we understood it looked like to be Mexican. And if she's wrong about her use of clothing, it can't immediately be or easily be understood as an homage or as uplifting or as an act of rebellion against whitewashing of the Mexican culture, which I think is something that is uh, important when you live outside of Mexico. I think Hispanic people, um, we just want to take care that our culture and our identity doesn't get erased. So without the clothing that Frida wore, the rest of us have only what we are calling the colonizer's version of how to present ourselves as Mexican. Additionally, I didn't really find her mixed ethnicity all that significant because since Mexico's inception as a Hispanic country, most, if not all, non-indigenous Mexicans are mixed. You know, our DNA is a map of uh, people having been invaded and transcontinental travel in Europe and slavery so I never really understood Frida as a white woman even though her father was German. Me personally I'm 48% indigenous but the rest is like North African European and on top of that I'm born in the U.S. so that's all to say that Mexican is a complex ethnicity but it's Mexican all the same. I do see Frida as separate from indigenous and I'm also understanding that the way a person lives the culture is important. Personally, I feel sometimes I can't consider myself Mexican if I'm not living the cultural practices. I find it hard to justify, for example, celebrating Day of the Dead, but in contrast, I feel a responsibility to connect with those aspects of my culture in order to feel like I belong somewhere or I know who I am, what my point of view is, and what I could could do in order to impart a positive view of my culture to the Americans watching me now. Maybe my thoughts are maybe Frida did too, in a way. Maybe that was her intention. So this episode, the Frida episode, brings up the idea of a crisis of identity for Frida. And I think because she was born during a time when Europeanism was being criticized heavily her schooling was perhaps in reaction to that. A personal example would be me growing up in the US, saying the word Mexican was like saying a dirty word. For a very long time, I was convinced that I should be ashamed of saying that. I tried more and more to become what was considered American, which was synonymous with being correct. And for that, I have been called a coconut or whitewashed by the same people who would deride me for being so Hispanic. Today, I want to undo all of that and i find myself if i buy from indigenous craftswomen a handwoven dress to wear and to to show to my wider audience like this is mexico this is what indigenous women can do and it's beautiful i fear i'll face the same criticisms as frida when i genuinely find them lovely to wear and i only want to support the craftswomen of mexico so i don't think Appropriation happens when you buy indigenous crafts directly from indigenous men and women. As an artist myself, I would think they would want to sell as much as they could sharing their pride in their work. I think appropriation is buying from American corporations that are making money off of a, a diluted form of culture from oppressed people, stealing those complex designs expertly executed by thousands of years of knowledge and skill. I think there's room in this conversation to believe that Frida felt some kind of genuine desire and made a genuine attempt to connect to the Mexican identity that she was taught in school. I think she made a choice to embody what she felt was fundamentally Mexican. But to what end, I, I really, honestly, I can't say. Was it to bring awareness? Was it to feel like she belonged? Was it a statement? And that's the thing we just can't be sure. All of this is not to say that she didn't offend people and in the process took the light away from Indigenous women or that this topic isn't worth confronting. I was confronted with the question, though, of how much of that is or was her fault or her intention and how much of that is the time that she lived in and her society's discrimination. I'm glad you guys brought up the social milieu her social milieu, because it matters a lot who were the and are the voices that are speaking of her and approving her for public consumption. I think Frida's international travels, and being on the cover of Paris's Vogue at the time and the mystique she built around herself, coupled with the fact that her skin color was internationally acceptable, made her the icon that she is today around the world. That much is true. but can it also be true she made an honest attempt to honor Mexican heritage in defiance of those popular racist attitudes? I think there's room for that. I don't think it's entirely fair to say Frida is guilty of appropriation. So I think a more productive conversation regarding appropriation in our world and in our culture today would be how to teach our diaspora across the globe to value our handmade crafts.
1: Thanks to Maribel for this comment because some of her points are very very valid. It hits a string for some people, right? And it's very personal for for a, for a lot a lot of Hispanics and Latinos uh, because she's she was such an icon and she still is. I think one of her main ideas was maybe that Frida Kahlo was not appropriating. Um, that maybe that wasn't her intent. She just wanted to pay homage to her Mexican heritage and she felt that wearing and painting her herself in these like mexican symbols and dresses and all that stuff was a way for her to identify herself as and i think that's valid um, i think we also talked about that in the in the podcast that we don't really know what her intent was but like it could it could have been right like she could have felt that way and she also mentioned um want, uh, wanting to support like indigenous uh, artesanos and that She's afraid of feeling that people would criticize her or call her um, or tell her that she's appropriating because she may not be indigenous, but she wants to support indigenous artistry and wear it because she genuinely thinks it's beautiful. And I think that that there is a fine line there, right? Um, because being from Oaxaca, and I want to be completely transparent and very, very honest, when I see someone that is not Oaxacan wearing... um that I know is from Oaxaca, I'm like, oh, I wonder I wonder where she got it from, or I wonder where they got it from, if it was, like, locally bought, if they bought it, like, at a Forever 21 store, um, <laughs> which vendor did they buy it from, and are they Oaxacan? Oh, they probably are. Let me go talk to them. And it sparks a conversation, and when I find out that they are not Oaxacan, I'm like, Ugh, yikes, right? But then at the same time, she, um, I feel like, it's also very valid like to want to recon reconnect with some of those roots that you may have there in Mexico or in Oaxaca, you know, you're trying to navigate this journey where you're decolonizing yourself and reconnecting with, with your roots. And I think that sometimes it there's, there's just a fine line that gets blurred.
3: I think it was just like interesting how she talked about culture versus like identity, mm-hmm. right. Which I think is what we're combating as a white Latina myself, like, I've definitely gone through that process, but I think that it's also about valuing uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, learning the history behind it and just kind of, it sounds, I, I take it how you want, but kind of knowing your place, like listening to the people that it comes from, understanding where they're coming from and respecting that. So I think it's
4: important to kind of contextualize the Mexican identity into two separate components, right? So, so when we talk about being Mexican, there is a consensus that we also have to include race within that whole conversation or discourse. So being Mexican doesn't automatically mean that you're indigenous because as an indigenous woman in Mexico, I always knew that I was indigenous, like I am indigenous. But now that when you look at the diaspora, um, it kind of makes the Mexican identity like very monolithic when it's not. So the thing with Frida is that necessarily she was painting herself or portraying herself as an indigenous woman when she was not. Um, Being mixed has nothing to do with that just because, you know, blood quantum is something that as indigenous peoples we continue to invalidate and not accept within Mexico. So it's interesting to see or hear that the critique that Diana La Zapoteca was saying is being perceived as critiquing blood quantum or a mixed person. Now, when it comes to Frida's identity, obviously, you know she's not alive anymore, and I feel like because there's been this discourse that is trying to portray all Mexicans as indigenous, a lot of people are trying to make Frida indigenous when she's not. Like even looking at her historical accounts, I know that Dicho de un Bicho is actually doing an article and research. And what he has shared so far with me is that even Frida's grandma was in Zapotec or from Oaxaca. It was her grandfather through her mom's side, so maternal grandfather, who was indigenous, but he was from another state in Mexico, not Oaxaca. When you look at the indigenous cultures that she did appropriate, Um, it comes from a lot of her servants. So a lot of her servants were Zapotec or from other indigenous communities in Oaxaca. So I think this is like a really complex discussion to have. And like talking about blood quantum, talking about mixed ancestry, talking about Frida becoming the Mexican icon in reality there is like indigenous people still in mexico which is a settler state and we should not forget to mention that mexico is a settler state operating under settler, uh, settler colonialism government structures are meant to oppress black and indigenous folks who are in mexico we also shouldn't forget that indigenous cultural appropriation continues to be monopolized and also Um, commercialized in Mexico to make money because, you know, as a Mexican settler government, their entire goal is to make money, right? The economic revenue tourism is one of the ideas because somebody culturally appropriated, now people think that a lot of the garments, even our indigenous regalia, our Tejuan dresses, as somebody who comes from a family of artisans who embroider, I have heard a lot of the like free that, Um, shirts, or Frida blouses, be used as descriptions to our regalia, our webeless, when that's not Frida's um, clothing, as someone who was not Zapotec, as someone who was using that clothing for aesthetic purposes. So I think this discussion is a little bit more complex and when we look at the direct definition of appropriation, it means to utilize something from a culture that doesn't belong to you for advancements to yourself or for something that's going to benefit you. So when I look at Freedom and a lot of her paintings she painted herself with whoopiles that were not necessarily hers. So this is not saying that people cannot wear whoopiles, because I know that that's also an economic revenue for a lot of our artisans, including my relatives. It's our livelihood, right? So the thing is that there is a line between wearing something and then not acknowledging what community comes from, right? So in her paintings, in her presentations, and I think this will take a historian, right, or to do that historical research, and you know, through the archives and all the videos that are of her, the photos, she never mentioned I'm wearing a huipil from the Zapotec community, right? She never mentioned this huipil was made by this artisan. So I think, in a way, because as we know, the Mexican identity is very complex and multifaceted. So because she was like being recognized globally as Frida Kahlo, Mexican artist, people started conflating those things so that indigenous regalia and garments with Frida so in my way in my opinion I think that when you wear something that's not from your culture and you don't acknowledge from what culture it comes from and then people start saying that's so-and-so's style then that's what result in cultural appropriation. I'm Dr. Jessica Hernandez. I'm a Zapotec and Maya Chorti indigenous scientist. So, my work is looking at the intersection of environmental food and climate justice through an indigenous lens. I believe that indigenous science allows us to holistically look at the environment and our Mother Earth. And through indigenous science, I believe that we can heal our indigenous landscapes, especially since they have been ultra-impacted and destroyed because of settler colonialism.
0: So what is Dia de los Muertos? What is the history behind that holiday?
1: So, Dia de los Muertos has origins in Latin America, um, but it combines like indigenous rituals and customs with Catholicism um, that was brought over by the Spanish colonizers. But really, we can find um, similar celebrations to Dia de los Muertos almost. All across the country, but Día de los Muertos specifically comes from Latin America. People find its main connection to like indigenous communities in Mexico, so like the Aztecs, the Incas, Zapotecs, and so forth. Yes. How do you celebrate Día de los Muertos? Mm, so for me, Día de los Muertos, or I know people call it differently. Um, so Día de los Muertos or Día de Muertos or Día de los Santos um, is a is a day or days. Um, because I know some people celebrate um, November 1st and 2nd, um, where, like, indigenous communities celebrate and honor their loved ones um, who have already passed and also their ancestors, right? For me, though, the, I have the deepest connection with the other los Muertos, and it's very personal and it's um, very emotional for me because... I grew up with with Dia de los Muertos and I have vivid memories of my mom like setting up the table with simple sugil and and the bread and the and the altar it was just so beautiful and and those are memories that you know that I have from when I was really really young and um, I remember doing all of the customs and all of the traditions that that come with it and it's so engraved in like my childhood and who I am now that I can't think of any other way of celebrating it. I really can't. And it's, it's just, it's just such a beautiful and sacred like celebration for, for me and my family and my community that I think it's just so important to talk about it and, and um, like really know what it's about. And um, if it connects to you or if you feel connected to it, like then celebrating it the, the, the right way, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think personally, I grew up in Mexico it was well we celebrated differently um uh, where we went to the cemetery and ate with you know our loved ones that passed away. It was meaningful it was it, I saw it you know as a as a child, but I think it the meaning grew even more when I migrated to the United States because those who passed and i couldn't say goodbye mm-hmm. I have kept um, the tradition of Dia de los Muertos more closely here in the United States than in Mexico.
3: How did uh, you practice the tradition of like Dia de los Muertos from Mexico? How does that differ from what you do now in the States?
0: I think it's different because now I take the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents okay. don't celebrate Dia de los Muertos because... And, and I think this is even a bigger conversation, but they became evangelical Christians. And I think we need to touch on this too, Diana, where... Indigenous practice were, uh, you know, looked down upon and judged um, because mm-hmm. of Christian beliefs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's still that's still true today. Oh,
1: one hundred percent, one hundred percent. And that like starts from when when the Spanish came to colonize Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that's where it starts. Like the whole uh, mixture with Catholicism and. And the um, indigenous rituals and customs. Like that starts mm-hmm. from way back then. And it's deeply, deeply rooted in our culture and in our people that even when celebrating um, such an ancient uh, celebration like Dia de los Muertos, like we still have to, um, you know, put our little virgencita or go to mass, mm-hmm. you know, or say a prayer. Like that mm-hmm. is still engraved into our culture. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And uh, certain, you know, religions demonize Dia de los Muertos because mm-hmm. you have skulls, because you have certain symbolisms um, that might disagree with certain religions, right? Even mm-hmm. even, you know, Christianity. And so uh my parents no longer celebrated Dia de los Muertos when we migrated to the United States. And it was like I took it upon myself to keep it alive.
3: I think that's a great segue into kind of talking about the altar and the, the symbolism.
0: Within. I, I was thinking about giving like what should be in an altar, but I feel uh-huh. like I don't want to give a guide of what mm-hmm. we put in altars because then people are going to be like, Ooh, let me do it too. You know what I mean? Right. And then we, mm-hmm. and then we perpetuate the, the same
1: issue we were talking about. And, and that was going to be <laughs> one of my, my things when I, um when we were like talking about it and I was, like, going through your notes, I was like, ooh, like, what goes on on altar? I don't know if I'm, like, comfortable yes, talking about that, you know, because it's so special and sacred to me in yes. my community, like, what I put on my altar and, like, what we do. And it's one of the few practices that, that my family and my community has been able to keep private and um i just would not want to put any more information out there that's already out there right because mm-hmm. with a simple google search like you you can find hundreds and hundreds of altares, pictures of them and what goes on in altar and what you should put right but i think that like my personal and yours too like um altars are so special and sacred to us that you know like saying what we put on there is probably not you know like appropriate for us because like it's something that we we do with love and care and it's personal and it's it's very difficult to put it out there.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I I agree. I don't think we have to go into that. I don't want to cater to like an audience to try and you know incite any sort of uh you know appropriation like we've already been, been discussing i think mm-hmm. um I, I know short latina you've you've shared how it's evolved in your life perhaps Diana, you can elaborate on how the other los muertos has evolved in your life
1: mm-hmm. so like short latina i have taking taken this celebration upon myself as well. Like I always watched how my mom and my grandmother and my aunts um, put their altars together and like we would do our celebrations. But now that I'm older and you know, like we've never been um, like death wasn't something to be scared of, right? And that's one of the things that yeah, the los Muertos celebrates is la muerte. And it teaches us to not be afraid and that it's just, you know, part of life. Um, and now that I'm older, I understand it better now. And I've come to terms with death, too. You know, like, it, like I said, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a natural thing that happens and it's part of life. And Dia de los Muertos is almost comforting for me because mm. of so many loved ones that have already passed. And it's a way for me to honor and to remember them and not in a sad way, even though it, it can feel sad at times or emotional, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Um, but we get to celebrate them in their life and um just be with family, which is which is very, very big for me. Um, so now that I'm older, I like remind my mom, I'm like, oh, we have to go and get our bread and we have to go and get our flowers and don't forget we have to visit this person and we have to visit this person and we have to take this and this for them and i can't wait to make this mole and i can't wait to make all this food and Mm -hmm. it's so beautiful and personal to me Mm -hmm. and it's engraved it's i feel like it's engraved in my dna you guys like (laughs) i can't (laughs) not celebrate it like, I cannot, and I can't wait to further celebrate it with, like, this generation that's coming. Like, I have a younger sister, and, and you know, she's learning how to set up all our altar and our our traditions, too. Like, she's learning, and I can't wait to see how she implements it in her, into her life when, you know, when all of, like, parents and, and myself, like, move on. I can't wait, you know, to mm-hmm. see how, how she celebrates it and how she passes it on. To her family i do want us to talk about why this
0: episode is so important to you like of course you love to celebrate it right mm-hmm. but i think we are also taking this moment to record this episode because we want to acknowledge that not everyone is celebrating it with the same intent mm-hmm. um you know to make sure that you know we, we, we communicate that Dia de los Muertos is not Mexican Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, we do also want to teach that um, the history behind it, how it became popular in the United States. Um, and so I, I want us to, to start to segue into that, uh, to talk about how it started uh, in, in LA and Diana, you shared amazing uh, information with me. I was wondering if we could go over that together just to give some context to our listeners of of why it's so popular right now. You know, you go to Party City and there are costumes uh for calaveras and how did it get there
1: i sent over some um some links to a video and some articles that i found like very informative on how dia de los muertos became so popular in the united states and um these articles i came across last year when doing my own investigation because dia de los muertos is celebrated every year around halloween and every year there is um like a <laughs> swarm of people that think it's Mexican Halloween and that it's okay to dress up as, um, as like Catrinas and paint their faces and all of this other stuff, right? Um, but it's important to know, like, why all of a sudden this is happening and when it actually started. So, Dia de los Muertos in the U.S. was not a thing until the 70s. Um, and for a really long time, it was a celebration that was considered to be a Chicano celebration. Um, And the reason for this was because um, the founder of an L.A. print shop, um, a Franciscan nun known as Sister Karen, um, she was credited with originating the modern Dia de los Muertos. So Sister Karen in the early 70s sent a bunch of artists to Oaxaca and other indigenous parts of Mexico to see how they celebrated And they basically imported all of that knowledge and all of those traditions back to their community here in Boyle Heights, L.A. So, yeah, (laughs) that was my my short little. And that blew me away, though, because I don't. Is Sister Karen White? Because I'm pretty sure she's Mm white.
0: Yes. Um, Yes. Yes, she was. (laughs) I think I think, you know, I we don't know. Again, we're talking history here. We don't. I do want to believe that she thought the holiday was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um and she did support artists like local artists. Mm-hmm. She opened a lot of doors for Chicanos to be able to express themselves and um kind of revive that holiday in a way. Right. Mm-hmm. So good, you know, props to Sister Karen. <laughs> um, but that's where we get into the blurred line. Mm-hmm.
1: So she I think it was in the in the video link phase that I sent um where they talk about Dia de los Muertos in LA specifically, they said that where Sister Karen went to school, she saw a film in um, that was made in 1957 called Dia de los Muertos, and she played it for the self-help um, graphics um, community, which was basically made of all Chicanos, and that's really where they got the idea and the theme for Dia de los Muertos, and after mm-hmm. watching that is when she sent all of these artists to Oaxaca to go and see like how they celebrated it and the aesthetic basically, and to bring it back. That's when they started celebrating it because they were like, oh, this! Um, we saw how all of these indigenous communities in Mexico celebrate it. And because they were Chicano, they, they have these roots in Mexico, probably not to those indigenous communities that they stole from, but they had that mentality that was like, oh, we're Mexican and these are, these celebrations are quote unquote Mexican. So we get, we want to reclaim all of this and celebrate it, right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I feel that for this Chicano community at that time, it had no spiritual significance. And going into, literally going into a different community like Oaxaca and other indigenous parts of Mexico, Literally stealing what you thought was beautiful or artsy or it fit the aesthetic that you were looking for is Mm -hmm. cultural appropriation. It is basically extractive colonialism. Like Mm -hmm. I don't, there's no other example that I could use but that. Mm -hmm. Extracting it and exposing it. And it wasn't the, I feel like it wasn't the right way to reconnect to their roots. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And I I put myself in their shoes uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit. I try to, we have different perspectives, right? Because I migrated directly from Mexico and I celebrated those traditions. I -hmm. know how to do an altar. My mom, you know, I I have different connection to it, right? So I can feel like, you know, I feel disconnected from my country. I want to be able to connect again, to feel part of a community again. How do you feel about it, Sabritas? You were born in the United States.
3: Yeah, so I was born in the States, um, but my mom was born in, in Durango, Mexico, and she's the one who really carried on the tradition that she learned, you know, from her, from her mother and her abuelita, and so I think you're right. I think it's also, that's really interesting, it's really interesting how we all were, you know, we all have a different connection to it. How we, it was brought down to us differently, or introduced to us in a different way. I, I, I know when I read this article, I'm surprised. Um, <laughs> but I, I, wonder. I, but I wonder how. I wonder how that changes regionally. So like, Dana, a, a lot of this is LA focused. I really, I really think about other places in the U.S., in the Midwest, and on the East Coast where you also have larger populations of Mexican communities, like how they adapted it um, mm-hmm. and if they practice it, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so I think that's also really interesting.
0: I think this is an important conversation. I think this is a big conversation. And again, just like the Frida Kahlo episode, it's going to hit a chord. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We are not saying don't celebrate the de los Muertos. We're not saying you don't deserve to celebrate the de los Muertos. What we are saying is we need to know the history, we need to acknowledge the origin, and we need to evaluate why we're celebrating it ourselves. Uh I think those are the key components to really understanding that we don't want to attack any listener that face paints, uh, you know, like Calavera uh, or Katrina for Dia de los Muertos, but we do want to bring consciousness.
1: And that there's different ways that people celebrate Dia de los Muertos too, Absolutely. but that there's an appropriate way to celebrating it, right? And mm-hmm. not an appropriate way is by dressing up as a Katrina for Halloween. To go to, not appropriate. to go to a rave. To go to a rave, dressed as a, as a Katrina. Like that, I'm right?
0: like Dad, I
3: hate you guys.
0: <laughs> like, so, what, yeah, she's yeah, like, you know, oh shit.
3: <laughs> because you know you've seen it. It's true.
1: Like every year, every year, like no falta. No uh-huh. falta. And in big cities like LA, like Chicago, there's always mm-hmm. going to be these really big celebrations um, for Dia de los Muertos. And there's going to be those few celebrations that just that just don't get it. They didn't understand. They don't understand the purpose of Dia de los Muertos. They don't understand how sacred it is. And they just think it's a way. It's a new It's a party. It's a party Mm -hmm. and that's what it is. When in reality, we know that it's
0: not. Let's go back a little bit. Sister Karen supported artists, sent them to Oaxaca. These artists, I think, let's let's hope, let's say that they appreciated the indigenous roots. They Mm -hmm. felt connected to their Mexican roots. And they said, you know what? I'm inspired. Let me create a work of art. And they did. And we have Four Seasons by Alfredo de Batuk in 1979, Leo Limón in 1981, Dia de los Muertos by Artemio Rodríguez. And we see these artists evolving in their art uh, with the theme of Dia de los Muertos. And I'll be honest, I think, and this is my take, Diana, um, I think that they felt connected, but then they evolved it.
1: I think then so they, too. They
0: made it them their own. Um, they began to make statements about immigration, the border.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: They began to do artivism, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I think that's when they reclaimed it, and that's a different topic. And I think it keeps evolving. Now it's, I think, a monster, to be honest. <laughs> I
1: think so too. And I think that you're right. I think that those artists, and when they were first reclaiming and and really like searching their roots for for any type of history and for any type of identity that they were looking for, right? They found something beautiful and they ran with it. They really did. And, And Sister Karen also had lots of artists who supported her and who wanted to share their art with her, like artists Carlos Bueno and Antonio Ibáñez, um, they have really famous paintings where they, um, th- they're actually from Mexico and they painted like what they would see in Mexico for the de los Muertos. And they mm-hmm. um, they decided to work with Sister Karen and, and show her, you know, this is what we see. And and they, they loved the fact that she had brought it to Boyle Heights and that they were starting the celebration that originated in Mexico. and. They loved the idea and they thought that they you know it was it was awesome that they Mm -hmm. that she had this whole community reclaiming um this celebration
0: and it slowly made its way to chicago and other parts of the united states like uh, Saurita said and they started incorporating aztec dancing in in the in the in the in the parades and in the ceremonies and then they started incorporating face painting you see that now in Mexico. But I remember growing up, you wouldn't be a calavera or a Katrina for Dia de los Muertos. You don't dress up, period. I mean, where I grew up. Now you do. <laughs> now it's now it's evolved, like we said, uh, because Mexico is it's capitalist society and they are making money <laughs> for of this holiday, too. And I want to make that clear, too.
4: Dia de los Muertos or Dia de los Santos is interesting, right? Because when I look at the history that's been passed down to me orally through my relatives and even the current traditions that we continue to follow, Dia de los Muertos is rooted on an indigenous tradition to celebrate the dead. But given that during colonialism, we weren't allowed to practice our cultures, right? Because there was this assimilation movement we started incorporating those traditions with religion. So when you look at Dia de los Muertos, it's November 1st and November 2nd, and it's called Dia de los Santos. So the first day, um, you know, in each day, you celebrate either the younger people who have passed or the older folks, adults. So like children, innocentes, and then the adults, the santos. We know that as a result of these assimilation tactics or forced assimilation that was happening in Mexico, during settler colonialism our indigenous ancestors started integrating some of our traditions with the current practices and we see that through all of north america right so you know this is not the only communities that did the same thing because there's a lot of spirituality indigenous traditions that have been integrated with religion because that's something that was infiltrated in our cultures because that was the only way we can survive for me dia de los muertos is you know honoring that culture and that act of resistance that my ancestors did to continue to survive that culture i believe that you know there is some sacred traditions that we do also that hasn't been appropriated so that's a good thing for us because it's done behind doors through rituals and ceremonies. Dia de los Muertos in a way is for us indigenous peoples is to reclaim part of those traditions that have also been lost. And through the indigenous traditions for my communities, death is not the final stage in our life. When you die, there's a spirit that continues to live. That's why we have the spirit world. spirituality that we still possess and it's still the medicine that we still possess and want to contribute right we don't say they're gone we just say they're finally meeting our ancestors and they're finally reuniting with those relatives that we have lost so Dia de los Muertos it's a way to honor our ancestors our relatives that we have lost so that we don't forget about them so that we continue to embrace that spiritual world with the living world. Dia de los Muertos has been not just commercialized in the U.S., but started with being commercialized in Mexico because tourists, when they visited certain indigenous communities during, you know, the Dia de los Muertos celebration, they thought it was, like, interesting. So, obviously, Mexico is always trying to pick certain things to commercialize for tourism, for economic reasons. One of the things that I was like reflecting on is that we cannot necessarily just blame the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. has power to commercialize something even internationally, right? But the thing is that it has been commercialized in Mexico. So it's not rare to find in the U.S. Mexican culture is conflated as this monolithic thing when it's not because you know obviously there are races or different cultures within Mexico that are unique and that's necessarily all the same. The U.S. thought that you know or thinks a lot of people in the U.S. think that Dia de los Muertos is something that is only related to Mexico or being Mexican when in reality even in other Latin American cultures they also because you know my dad is from El Salvador he's Chorti Maya there are other celebrations of death that might be really similar to Dia de los Muertos but because The other smaller countries don't necessarily have the same impact as Mexico does in the U.S. because obviously there is more people of Mexican descent or Mexican Americans living in the U.S. as opposed to you know Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. It's something that it's seen as initiating diversity and now it's kind of weird to find things that are supposed to are meant to be sacred at Target or Michaels. I'm not afraid or scared of this but it's because you know it's like a tradition that I will continue to follow the way that it's supposed to be followed. It's just a little bit disrespectful to see something that's not just part of your indigenous culture but sacred and you know, a tradition that was not necessarily allowed to be practiced by our ancestors during settler colonialism to now be this thing that everybody wants to do or celebrate. So like even the face painting is something that started in, the Los-, in Los Angeles to be specific, because you know, that's where you had the highest or um, Chicano or Chicanx populations. I think it was in a way to celebrate Halloween, but in a way to differentiate yourself from Halloween or your culture. but. Then again, it's interesting because now Dia de los Muertos has become this like Latino Halloween edition, as opposed to what it necessarily is. For us, traditionally, we do not dress as Katrinas or Catrín. Like you're welcoming your ancestors or relatives who have passed on from the spiritual world into the human world. And Dia de los Muertos, which is, uh, you know, the indigenous traditional way, it's celebrated Like, you don't go to sleep for hours. Like, you may be awake for three days long because you're in ceremony. Even when you look at it from that context, like, putting pain in your face and not going to sleep for 72 hours is not something that's doable. So, obviously, that's something that we don't do. And also because if we were to... Paint our faces as skulls. It's gonna confuse our ancestors or relatives who have passed on when they're trying to make that journey from the spiritual world into the human world. So I know everybody has the autonomy to choose what they wanna do, but when we talk about from what it means to Indigenous communities, at least for my community specifically, it's kind of disrespectful because. As I mentioned, it was a tradition that our ancestors couldn't practice. And when I talk about ancestors, it's not even that long ago because I feel like people forget that settler colonialism might be seen as something in the past, but settler colonialism is still alive. So we have different ways to which we we continue to be oppressed. It's interesting to see folks dress as Catrinas or even to dress, use Día los Muertos as something Halloweenish, just because. It is a tradition that our ancestors and relatives were denied access to. So as a result, they tried to keep the tradition alive. So they incorporated it with religion.
0: Let's fast forward to 2000, 2017.
1: 2017.
0: Yeah. Well, there's also
1: the Book of Life. Oh, right. I, you know what? I forgot to <laughs> write this down. I was like, Book of Life is a Dia de los Muertos movie. Don't, don't forget, but I, I, I guess I was like too hyper focused on the, the movie Coco <laughs> that I went straight to 2017 when it came out. But go ahead um, with the Book of Life. Go ahead. Well, Book of Life uh, is
0: a film in 2014. And as we know, uh, you know, Disney and Pixar, you know, they got to get their piece of the pie too. Um, so they started to develop. Uh, same concept movie about Dia de los Muertos. And I don't know if you guys remember, but they wanted to trademark the word Dia de los
1: Muertos. Yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And it took petitions from the community, from, from us to kind of be like, no, motherfucker, that's our holiday. Yeah. <laughs> Not for your fucking movie. <laughs> and then they settled on Coco. Now, I don't know if many people know about the history of Coco. Of of, of this, where the origins of the story, do you guys know? Tell us, tell us, <laughs> girl. I don't know either.
3: <laughs> I don't know the exact. I don't. I don't know um, Mama Coco's name. I don't know name appropriately. So, and I don't. I don't want to give misinformation. That's all I'm trying to say.
0: <laughs> okay. So, um, according to our sources, right now mm-hmm. we do know actually that Disney. They do their research. They like to be thorough. Um, and they went to Mexico
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and they started to and they even say in their like little doc- documentary, like they started to kind of um, look at the colors and the details, get them from Mexico. Um, and actually they have um, I listened to a podcast episode Latina to Latina and they interviewed Ana Ramirez Gonzalez, who's from Mexico, and she's one of the Coco illustrators Illustrators for Coco. Mm -hmm. And she talks in that episode about her connection to the movie. And all it is is that she's Mexican. Oh, Um, my God. You know. (laughs) She has
1: no other connection to to why it was being made. It's just
0: the fact that she was Mexican. Yes. She was recruited because she was a Mexican illustrator. She she is very talented. um, Wow. But. She talks about her experience, you know, how, you know, Disney gave her this opportunity um, and they they really look to her to to for inspiration. Mm -hmm. Um, But she has no. And, you know, of course, she would celebrate Dia de los Muertos in Mexico. And she talks about the research she had to do. There was Mexican staff in the creation of Coco. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that gives license to Disney to say it's okay. for us oh. to take traditions, you know, and put it on the big screen and market it and appropriate it, mm-hmm.
2: because that's mm-hmm. what it is,
0: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They're making yeah. money. They're making money off our culture. Um, we also have heard that you know they went to Mexico and they uh, met this woman whose actual name is Coco, and just kind of took her life story. Right? We've heard
3: that too.
1: I want to know, like, what. What you guys thought when you first watched the movie when it first
3: came out when it first came out Mm -hmm. i remember being in uh dc visiting my sister and of course like all 15 of us (laughs) went to go visit her and we went to go watch the movie together uh around thanksgiving as a family and i'm a very i i cried like a baby i do remember that like i remember crying like a baby in the movie but then you know, as as the movie gained popularity, of course, this also like triggered a conversation of capitalizing off of Mexican culture, right? And to be quite honest, I didn't realize at that moment the effect Coco would have in changing Dia de los Muertos because I I because it was reaching an audience much further than the Latinx community, than Hispanic. It was catered to introduce it to the white audience, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why even just like going through this history and looking to see how it's evolved, it, it's just really shocking to me that at that moment, that was a historical moment that was going to trigger something so much bigger. Oh, yeah. What about you, Charlotte, Latina? what did you think?
0: Man, I cried like a baby. Um, <laughs> whenever you see you know, um, just your culture on, on, on screen. You want to support it, right? You, you think this is an opportunity to show up and, you know, proof with the box office num- numbers that we are here. We're present. You know, we have power, uh, when it comes to media. And we hope that that will send a message of create more content for us, motherfuckers. Like, it's not that hard. <laughs> but then you realize that again, there will be a domino effect. And I think I saw it and I cried. I was like, wow, this is beautiful, right? When Mm -hmm. she sings, when they sing, oh my God, I'm about to cry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And if I watch that movie now, I will cry. I think Mm -hmm. I have the issue with this movie later was that, it started with them that we know the intent was them for them to make money because they tried to trademark the de los Muertos, right? I knew that already. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we watched a movie. And if you really think about it, there's a border, which I wasn't cool with. There's a border. And he has he can't, the main character, boys by uh, Gael, can't cross the border. And I'm like, that's fucked up. Like, <laughs> we're already struggling with that in the real life. Like, yeah. we're going to struggle with that in Afterlife, too. Like, was that a comment on the border mm. uh, policies in the United States? Like, I don't, I don't know what I was trying to say. Um, I just didn't like to see that again on the big screen and for children. Mm-hmm. I also think that when non-Latinos, people that don't celebrate the holiday, look at that movie, they think that we actually believe the movie to the T,
3: and it almost right. creates like oh, a fantasy. Uh, yes, that is yes. so. My mom said the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god!
0: By the way, uh, the history of Mama Coco. Um, you guys can do a quick. We'll put some links on our, you know, episode. You guys can check for yourselves and define it for yourselves. But Disney has said that the, uh, you know, the story of Mama Coco is not inspired by anyone, only by the place in Mexico. But they also said this about about you know the Lion King. And I don't know if you guys know, but they stole that from a Japanese animator.
3: Mm. Okay.
0: The White Lion. I didn't know that. You guys didn't know? know?
3: No, I didn't know that. They either. stole mean, frame by frame. Bitch. Are we
1: surprised?
3: Yeah. I am. <laughs> no, I, I actually am very surprised. I'm a little bit surprised.
1: Okay. I'm a little bit surprised. You guys can Google Kimba
0: the White Lion. Google it now, man. I want you guys. I want Kimba? to hear your reactions. Hold on, Kimba with Kim. a K. Kimba. Kimba the, the white, white
1: Lion.
3: Bitch. Oh, okay, oh, get out of here. Oh my God, <laughs> is this crazy? is crazy. As Charlatina. why? Why is this just coming into? Com-
0: did I just destroy you guys' childhood? I apologize. Yeah, you did. You...
1: So this this. <laughs> wow, I am in shock. So the, the <laughs> right. story and the whole thing started in 1951. It used to
0: be a, a manga, mm-hmm. um, illustrated by um, Osamu Tezuka. and then it he developed like a cartoon and. It, Disney took it took it and wow. they they deny it to this day that they stole frame by frame from Kimba the white lion and you guys can watch it uh-huh. <laughs> it is the same thing bitch there's I'm- even there's even P- Pumba and Timon like nothing <laughs> is original
1: wow 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 <sighs> I am in shock like
0: Well, and that's why I, I, you know, even though they deny that they didn't take the whole story of Mama Coco from an actual person, this is why I don't trust them either. Because if they can lie about something already in paper, visual that you can prove, uh, of course they're not going to give credit to uh, a Mexican woman.
1: Uh 100%. Well, I have a little like tidbit about... um the movie so Mm -hmm. so when i first watched it like i'm gonna be 100 honest i cried like both of you guys i went with a friend and um i cried the entire time it was one of the only times that i've ever seen myself and my family and my community in a movie and in in a children's movie right and my initial Reaction was to absolutely love it. I loved the Oaxacan references. I loved the abuelitas and the music and all of the art. But soon after, I found out that the communities where the producers went to like inspire themselves. Um, were not compensated at all and I was actually able to go to one of the talleres um, in 2019 uh, December of 2019 I went to Oaxaca to visit family and I was able to go to one of the talleres um, de Alebrijes, um where the producers spent months and months and months there and that's where they got all of them um, all of their inspiration for the alebrijes. And this taller is, the name is Taller Jacobo y María Ángeles. And it's really, really big. It's very popular now because they they have like an actual certificate from Disney that says that the producers were there for, I think like three years before and would stay for months and months for Dia de los Muertos to see how they would paint and how the community there would celebrate. And actually, um the main um, artesano, Don Jacobo, he is the inspiration for Miguel's dad in the movie, Coco. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And they oh my God. The,
1: the, um, the inspiration for their, um, their cook, um, who, who cooks for the, all of the artists at that taller, she is the inspiration for Mama Imelda in the movie. Mm-hmm. And they have literally side-by-side photos from um like del senor jacobo and la, la senora the cook um mm-hmm. i can't remember her name but she was the inspiration for mama imelda and when we were there we got a tour of the whole taller and we were able to like see how they uh made the alebrijes and when they were talking about coco I asked you know like were you guys paid like how how did Disney compensate you guys and they were like oh they didn't you know they just after the movie was made they sent us a letter that just has Disney at the top like the Disney logo and it says all the producers were here and they thank you for all of the inspiration and that's it (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. it like they didn't give them anything that's
3: straight up disrespectful as hell Mm
1: -hmm. and I mean we know right like we know like how terrible that is
3: yes we want representation but we also want compensation yes Mm
1: ma'am yeah I feel like after, like, after Coco came out, there was, like, this huge, like, explosion of sugar skulls and flower crowns of Semposuchil and Mm -hmm. Dia de los Muertos face paints and costumes in stores like Target, Michaels. I mean, even the Dollar Tree, okay? And we begin to, like, we began to see more and more people use... Like, the excuse for Coco, the movie, to use it as a Halloween costume. Like, we thought yeah. even more, right? And um, we began to see people with absolutely no connection, no knowledge, nothing. I think it's just been commercialized beyond recognition, beyond its true meaning. And
0: I don't, what, I don't want our listeners to be confused and be like, wait, what do you mean? So, do I celebrate it? Do I not? Mm-hmm, How?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I right. think So, I think that learning, educating yourself respecting the de los Muertos and really understanding that it's one of the celebrations that was able to survive in its most authentic forms for some communities. It's a way of survival, that it's a way to honor and celebrate our ancestors, understand that our practices are sacred and respect our boundaries, like indigenous people's boundaries when celebrating it. Um, many of us don't want to share information because it's sacred and it's very personal to us, and when we do um, share it, we don't want people, you know, like stealing it and using it for their own. Uh, many of us don't want outsiders to help um, or outside, I say outsiders, but I really mean like other folks who are not indigenous or who are not part of our communities to quote unquote help or keep our traditions alive or participate because it's it's not yours to celebrate or to use or, or participate in like the way that we celebrate. Uh, but those who are trying to reconnect and who, to those who who do know that they have some connection to to this holiday or to, sorry to this um celebration um like, I want to invite them to do their own research on their family and and their community and how they used to celebrate it, right? Just ask, you know, how did we ever celebrate this? Did, did our, our ancestors celebrate this? How? And just go on from there, right? And don't take what's already been colonized and commercialized as authentic or spiritual or sacred because it is not. It is not. We really mm-hmm. want to to do our research and and find what is authentic what is true to me what is true to you and celebrate it in that way because going to target and buying a, a pre-made up that <laughs> is not the way to go i promise it's not the way to go
2: <laughs>
1: and just Damn. really like just listen like like listen to podcasts like this you know like take part in these sometimes uncomfortable conversations. No one wants to be called a cultural appropriator. No one wants to be called a colonizer, but no one wants to talk about these things that can be uncomfortable, but they're so necessary. Thank you, Diana, for sharing that.
3: I kind of wanted to get into like our youngins and, you know, our younger tradition and teaching them and how to passing down traditions to our younger ones, building their identity, how they can relate themselves to you know to this tradition mm-hmm.
0: that 's where we start that 's how we if we re educate the younger ones to to celebrate it, how our ancestors celebrated it, then we can end this terrible commercialized Dia de los muertos that 's mm-hmm. how you break the cycle I think that's that's what 's important where you you t- you bring your cousins and your you know the younger ones and you teach them how to build an altar okay. because then they see the meaning behind it, the value. It just brings family together. Um, and I think it's important for us to educate ourselves so we can educate the younger ones. I think that's a very valid point.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that's a perfect way to end too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Diana, for joining us once again. It is always a pleasure uh, to have you as a guest. But we do want to uh, end with how we can our listeners can support you. What do you have going on? let us know uh, what we can do.
1: You can always follow me on my Instagram, Diana La Zapoteca, Twitter, Diana La Zapoteca. If you would like to send me money, if you learned anything from this, if you ever learned anything from any of my social media, my um, Venmo is at Oaxaqueen, O-A-X-C-A-Q-U-E-E-N. And you can find that in my social media. So I'm always trying to educate folks like on what I know in the best way that I know you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh I'm just out here surviving y'all I'm trying (laughs) to survive and and are we all man yeah
3: (laughs) (laughs) live my life day by day (laughs) thank you so much again Diana, for joining us
1: thank you guys so much for holding the space for me
4: Mexico it's made up of so many cultures and races it's kind of it's kind of interesting and it kind of makes me laugh when something is associated as the entire mexican culture when it's not like it's only certain communities that kind of celebrate that aspect and even dia los muertos it also kind of in- embraces the Afro-Indigenous cultures that we also have in Mexico that have been denied also the same rights as non-Black Indigenous peoples because you know when you look at the Afro-Indigeneity it's something that you know Deaf is something that's also celebrated by them. If you look back at some of the tribes in Africa and other you know Afro-Caribbean countries is Deaf is also celebrated. They also have like their own every Indigenous culture is different and so I think we just decided to just turn a blind eye to boy getting offended because, as you mentioned, it's kind of hard not to find somebody, like, with a face paint on November, you know, on Dia de los Muertos. So, at this point, sometimes we... And it's kind of sad, right? That we just have to like look down and just ignore people because otherwise we will be offended (laughs) those two days to be specifically. And even in Halloween, because some people also dress up, like you mentioned, use it for Halloween too. For me, Coco, it was really sad to see that it was, you know, the grandma character was based off an indigenous woman that, you know, I don't know if it was the writers or the directors who interviewed her, and then she wasn't even compensated for sharing her stories, right? Um, For us indigenous, you know, for our indigenous elders, they love, you know, sharing their oral stories and we always they always look at the good in people so they never you know she probably never thought that it was going to be commodified or portrayed on the big screen like i know there's a lot of articles that talk about how she wasn't even compensated so i think that's the sad part right because it kind of reminds us that as indigenous communities in mexico like i keep on saying mexico loves to celebrate indigenous cultures without the indigenous peoples and it kind of reminds me of you know, something recent, right? The Miss Mexico pageant, where every Mexican state was represented through this over exaggerated costume. I would call it a costume that was made by, I don't know if it was dressmakers or designers that kind of incorporate some of our indigenous regalia. So it kind of reminds me of that, right? Because when I am wondering how many of Miss Mexico contestants are actually indigenous. And it's kind of sad, right? Cause like everybody celebrates Karen Begum, the Oaxacan model, because not only is she the first Oaxacan model, she is also the first indigenous Oaxacan model to make it to the cover of Bogue. So to see how even her story, she describes how in the modern world, it's kind of hard to be embraced for being indigenous. For your skin color, or even for your features, right? Or anything else for being indigenous. You know, Catholicismo, which is the religion, you know, Catholicism, has been so embedded within Mexico. Like, this is not a way to tell people you cannot do that or you shouldn't do that, right? Because every time, as an indigenous woman or, you know, woman, when we start saying, you know, our lived experiences or perspectives, we are personally attacked. Or um, label as gatekeepers. They're trying to, you know, complain for no reason. They're trying to be anti-Mexican, you know, even though you know our indigenous, our native lands are what people now call Mexico. So it's, you know, people come up with creative terms to kind of attack us personally. It's the same way, like we never tell people don't wear our list, right? Because a lot of, you know, even my relatives depend on that livelihood, but you do it with like an honor and that intent that you want to respect and amplify indigenous voices as opposed to use it as like this is who i am this is my identity because i feel like when you start conflating what you're wearing with your identity unless you know that you have some you know ancestry or you know that you're a descendant of those community kind of comes like a little bit you start um walking that fine line between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. Earth Daughters, which is the account that I manage, um, that I have to manage as of now, and also my consulting small business, Piñazo, we're actually leading three mutual aid efforts. One is to help Vinibiani, which is an indigenous woman-led organization in Oaxaca that is helping our you know indigenous pueblitos with the pandemic and relief efforts. They're supporting the rebuilding of homes, and they're also helping our children with educational supplies with, you know, to tackle this online learning that Mexico is also trying to do. And the second one is Nyanyanga Villaltepec, which is an indigenous Mistec woman-run collective of artisans. And the heavy rains have recently destroyed their Camino harvest, Camilpas, so as a result, 80 families out of their communities are single mothers or elders who don't enti- who don't have another livelihood just because, you know, they're elders or single moms. With $20 of donations, that's somebody's week's worth of groceries. And then the third one is Manos de Oaxaca, and that's another collective of artisans in San Mateo del Mar, which is the Icut community. Um, The Iquts community is like a smaller Pueblo, indigenous Pueblo in Oaxaca that sometimes is conflated as being Zapotec but they're actually not Zapotec, they're Iquts. They're one of our relatives and they're doing this traditional foods baskets where they're incorporating like local fish from the you know fishermen that they purchased from and also cleaning supplies. So that would be a good way for folks to support and also to understand that this is our lived experiences and perspectives and I am Jessica Hernandez and what makes me nerdy is my passion and interest to relearn, unlearn and continue to learn as I grow as as an adult.
1: What makes me nerdy is my passion, love, and knowledge for my culture.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Nerdy Latinas podcast. Please share us, review us, and send us a voice message. We'd love to hear from you. We'd also like to thank our guests and Madera Once for allowing us to use their beautiful music for this episode. Please join us in the next episode of Nerdy Latinas Podcast.